when um, the animals and things when ah uh, beans I should have prepped. That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Ostron, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Ryu. And I'm Lennon. And this is the 188th entry into our chronicle, recorded on Saturday, November 6th, and released Wednesday, November 10th, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. So, Lennon, what's in store for our brave adventurers this week? In this week's adventures pack, Ryu shows us how teeth can be your companion. After that, we gather around the campfire as we engage in some dissonant whispers, this time talking about session preparation. Next, we take a short rest and hear some wisdom of the masters on intelligent villains before finally heading over to the scrying pool to see what you all have to say. That takes care of all the introductions, so let's take a look at what's in our adventures packs. Do you always carry this much in your bag? If we're gonna get out of here, we're not gonna need a few things. Name one thing you're gonna need the stupid rule for! A while back, I introduced you guys to the Baby Bestiary, which was a set of supplements that allowed your players to find and raise pretty much any creature as a travel companion, as well as another party member with its own version of the sidekick system. Well, in case you didn't get enough companions from that, today I've got a treat for you. Cue the groaning from Ostron. Stibble's Codex of Companions is a book of mostly tiny and small creatures that you can add to your game to give your players a little something extra. Now, unlike the baby bestiary, where the companions eventually took on the role of sidekicks, the companions in Stibble's Codex are more like Find Familiar 2.0. Some of them are normal animals, like Ray Ray's favorite, the capybara, or even a butterfly. But a lot of them are either unique to this book, like the Mim Cat or the Crabbit, or smaller versions of creatures already in the original Monster Manual, such as a Black Pudding Cup or a tiny Tarrasque-like creature called an Ecutaris. Like I mentioned already, the vast majority of these creatures are sized tiny to small, with only a really small number of hit points, most of them having four or less. And even the larger creatures in the codex hover around 15 to 16 hit points. And there's only one creature in the entire book that goes past 19 hit points. And that is the Gummy Bear Ooze Amalgamation, which weighs in at 35 HP. So these are really more like pets that you can give your characters than sidekicks. And as opposed to the Baby B series sidekick system, the creatures in Stibble's Codex all have unique stat blocks and features, which I think gives them a little bit more personality at the table. The vast majority of this book is chapter one, which makes up the bestiary, but like the baby bestiary, there is more to Stibble's Codex than just a tome of pets. There are guidelines on how to incorporate finding and taming creatures into your game, including rolling tables stating which type of environment in which each creature can be found, and its rarity within that environment. There is also a rollable table for giving your companion a particular personality, though there are suggested personality types on each of the creature stat blocks as well. 
there's a bonding system that unlocks some benefits, not really mechanical benefits, but they do still help your game a little bit. And there's also ways to lose bond just to keep the game a little bit more interesting. There is actually a leveling system as well, kind of. Um, it's in the form of ability training, which gives you a way to increase the companion's ability scores a little bit. There are guidelines on setting up a dueling arena where different companions can duke it out. There are companion-themed feats, spells, and magic items. And there's a section on how to incubate various types of eggs if your characters are lucky enough to come across one. Now, if the book is too much for you, or if you just want some quick reference or something to hand out to your players if they manage to snag one or more of these companions, there is also a card deck box that contains a card for every creature in Stibble's Codex, along with a shortened version of their stat block. Now, there is one part of this book that I actually don't like, and that is that it doesn't have an introduction. It just jumps straight into the bestiary with no primer about what you're going to find in the book. And because of that, I was actually really confused when I first started reading it as to how the companions would actually fit in the game. Fortunately, my confusion was put to rest by the time I got past the companion list, but since most supplements don't put the bestiary first, I really felt like my confusion was justified there. But another problem, at least in my opinion, that arises from the book not having an intro is that I have no idea who Stibbles actually is other than from what I can gather about him from his character in the cover art. And that just kind of bugs me. I feel like if you have a specific character's name in the title of the book, you should be given at least some kind of information on that character. I admit that's probably a little bit nitpicky on my part, but that's just my own feelings on it. Anyway, even though I am somewhat apologetic to Ostron about introducing another potentially campaign derailing aspect to his games, I really like this supplement as an alternative to the baby bestiary, so if you also like the idea of having your players having pets, this resource might be of interest to you. So this book goes from very straightforward to very weird. Yeah. You can get, like you said, a capybara on one hand, and then you can get a flying spaghetti monster on the other. <laughs> it's so true. I think my favorite creature in this book is actually the ma'aw. It's basically a disembodied mouth that mm -hmm. can fix itself in anything, such as a stuffed bear. <laughs> right. But the actual creature is just a mouth. That's it. It's great. Yeah, like I said, it goes. It runs the gamut from regular to weird uh, pr pretty quickly. One thing that I have noticed, though, actually, and uh, I know that you're usually the one, Ryu, who's spotting the QA things, the flying spaghetti monster, I was just scrolling through and the artwork caught my attention, so I stopped. It's actually called a skinty. And if you read the lore description, it basically says that they don't need to eat. But then if you read the stat block, it says they have a diet of spaghetti. So my immersion is now totally ruined. <laughs> well, it's still possible to eat even though you don't need to. As somebody who has put on pandemic weight, I can absolutely say that is the case. Yeah, you're right. I take it all back. I also do really like the um, the Mimicat. That's that's another one of my favorites from this book. I'm waiting for Astra to talk. <laughs> I, I don't... I'm having trouble with this one. Do tell. As I said, I was somewhat apologetic. Well, no, just like bluntly, there's nothing about this that I like. Okay. Like, I, I I'm get... I'm not surprised. 
I get what they're trying to do here. And I appreciate the attempt, but it is not appealing to any part of me whatsoever. This is not how I like to play D&D. This is not the kind of atmosphere or aesthetic I like to introduce to D&D. And yeah, it's just this... I mean, I literally don't... I can't... I've been looking and I can't find anything in here that appeals to me. I'm sorry. That's just... Not even just adding the monsters in by themselves? Well, no, because I can't figure out how most of them would be, like, applicable or useful. I mean, a couple... Having stat blocks for a couple of the quote-unquote real animals would be nice. There was actually a joke in a campaign I was playing recently with a bunch of our players. We were fighting a ginormous monster, and the druid polymorphed it into a butterfly. And the DM was momentarily stymied because there's no butterfly stat block in the monster menu. So if he had this, he would have a butterfly stat block. But like as a DM, which I usually am, I would have no use for most of these creatures stat blocks because they're all, like you said, they're all basically statted out to be familiars or companions, which means... That's by definition, they're sort of weaker on average. Yeah. So, I mean, in order to make any of them a threat to any party above level one, you'd have to use like swarms of. Yeah, but there there are gummy bear oozes in this book, Ostrov. Right. No, and, <laughs> I don't and think I mean, you're going to win him over with that. That's I know. <laughs> that's my point. Is like I very much understand what audience they were trying to attract with this. I am 100% not that audience. But your players might be. <laughs> I mean, some of them might be, yes, but it would not, like, I think more of my players would either ignore it or be put off by it than would enjoy it, at least for the group I usually play with. I do know some members of my group would enjoy this and would get into it, but not enough for me to sort of put myself through this. Now, I do like some of the additional mechanics that they've included with the ways to bond with your pet. And I probably wouldn't use them exactly as written, but I would definitely take it and use it as the basis for deepening a connection between a ranger and their beast the next time I have a Beastmaster ranger. I think there's some really good ideas in here. The only reason why I'm saying that I wouldn't take it wholesale is because a lot of it does tie into the creatures that are presented in the book. So again, if you're not using exactly one from there. But that aside, uh, there are some pretty good ideas in here, like, you know, uh, uh, bond boons, which can help in the ranger's case to buff it up a little bit. Also, uh, things that you can do to deepen the connection generally, like playing with your companion and things like that. Also, if anybody ever wants to run a Pokemon-style game, yeah, this has a dueling companions in an arena section. See, the main reason that this book caught my eye was because my players at some point had a a donkey. I think it was a donkey anyway, named Jerry. And they loved this donkey to pieces. <laughs> and I have no idea why exactly. But at one point... I was actually not the DM for this game, by the way, but at one point a green dragon came and ate the donkey and um, they were 
extremely upset for quite a while that their donkey was gone. So for me, this is a way to like, if you want pets, then you can use this to add those back into your game without having to necessarily worry about a green dragon coming and eating it because it's a literal pack horse. So, (laughs) well, if you like the sound of what you heard, we're giving away a card deck of animal companions in a cool Mimcat shaped box which is an exclusive Kickstarter version that you can't get anywhere else. If you'd like to be in with a chance of winning, look for our show post on Twitter or Instagram, retweet and share it, and your name will go into a very fancy hat and we'll draw a winner on next week's show. You have from the time our show post goes live until 8 p.m. Central on Saturday, November 14th to retweet and share, so keep a lookout on social media at Heroes Rise D&D. And links to Stipple's Codex of Companions can be found in our show notes, but is there something that's an absolute must-have at your tables? Found a cool app, book, or other item you'd like to share with other adventurers and dungeon masters? If so, let us know about it on social media at Heroes Rise D&D, or by emailing sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. But for now, let's gather around the campfire for some dissonant whispers. You did not. Yes, I did. You did not. Yes, I did. No, this isn't an argument. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. It's just contradiction. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It is not. Brave adventurers, join us around the firelight as we engage in some dissonant whispers. With me this evening, alongside my fellow co-hosts, are our patrons, uh, Castle the Mimic Enthusiast, Rat Queen, and Electric Lugaroo. Thank you so much for joining us, everybody. So, the way that this works is we pull a topic from the bag of holding, and we discuss the issue back and forth, providing our views, opinions, etc. on the topic at hand. And tonight's topic is... Session Preparation! So we've covered in past shows how to run a session zero, which is campaign preparation, but what about the individual week-to-week sessions? Do you have a tendency to under-prep, over-prep, or do you manage to hit that Goldilocks zone where everything is just right? And what are the things that, no matter how many times you run a session, always catch you off guard and you swear that you'll be more prepared for next time? Well, that's what we're here to find out. And because I think this is the first time that Casa has joined us, and the fact that uh, Casa's from my neck of the woods, so I don't want to confuse people with too much Britishness, we're going to start off with Casa. So, Casa, tell us, how do you prep your games? Also, in fact, tell us first, are you mainly a DM or a player? And if so, what is your experience with prepping for a game from that given angle? I, unfortunately, come under the banner of uh, Forever DM, so... I very rarely get a chance to actually play. So in terms of actually prepping uh, sessions, largely I don't. I have an idea of the main storyline. I know who the bad guys are. And a lot of it comes in with my mood. For example, if they need to be pushed in a particular direction, I need an NPC to do that. I'll jump onto fast character, make one up quickly, and then make notes as I go. So all my preps is sort of done as as it's going on. It has caused me quite a few problems in the past, but generally speaking, I found that that works better for my players than when I over-engineer and over-prep. Right. If I if I do over-prep, I feel often that I'm, I'm, I'm railroading them, or they might feel that. But what I found was uh, when, when that was actually going on, I'd do something completely random, like a dwarf would fall from the sky for, from, for no reason. It would just happen. They do their investigations, can't find any reason to it, and that sort of breaks up the flow, and then we carry on. And, and when I started doing that, I realized that actually the, the more random narrative works better for them. So I uh, devised a rolling table, uh, sort of, hey, what's going to happen in this particular episode or session? And it, it worked for me. 
Excellent. I mean, so you have just put me in mind of a phrase that if anybody is doing Nano Remo, and it is November, so I'm sure there's a, a lot of you out there that are doing it, they describe two types of people that write novels, either people who prep in advance, and they're known as preppers, or people who fly by the seat of their pants, and they are known as pantsers. So with that categorical description in mind, Electric, would you say you were a prepper or a pantser? I am definitely a pantser. Okay, so there's um, two pantsers. I am also... Um, as in previous Dissident Whispers, I'm a player. I'm uh, still intimidated to jump back into DMing, um, but that's another story. Most of my prep work comes from the fact that we play in the exact same location and I can leave 90% of my materials there mm -hmm. so I don't have to worry about forgetting dice or miniatures or um, a handful of other things. Right. Um, I do bring my laptop uh, for D&D Beyond access and um, my iPad so I can open a character sheet and keep it open. Um, but that's the extent of my prep. Once my character is built, I may... Um, the only time I'll do stuff beforehand is if we end a session where we've leveled up. I will usually do that um, sometime in between the end of that session and before the, the next session. I always like mm -hmm. to show up to the session ready to go. If I needed to change spells or level up or anything like that, I want it ready. But otherwise, um, that's pretty much all I do. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. I'm not... Yeah, that's just the way my mind works. All right. So, I'm just going to continue around the table at this point. Rat Queen, would you say that you are a pantser or a prepper and also player or DM? So I've been both a player and DM. As a DM, I'm definitely a prepper, and I'm trying to let go of some of that. Mm -hmm. As a player, I'm more of a pantser, but I do try to um, take notes, and my notes have definitely gotten less detailed and focused more on those core nuggets mm -hmm. to help keep track of um, you know, various quest lines, loose hanging threads and that sort of stuff also i always review my inventory just in case so i know what i have in case disaster strikes perfect yeah because you don't want to go forgetting that 50 foot of rope when you've got a 50 foot drop to climb and uh you know that there's going to be a way down there and you haven't brought featherfall either so no i understand um question though related to the fact that you're on both sides of the screen do you think that having seen what it's like for a dm to prep a session that that has made you more conscious as a player when you are prepping uh, a session from a player perspective? It might have made me um, a more dedicated note taker and note reader, because I feel like as a DM, I have a, a sense of the whole story arc in my head. And um, so it, as when I'm thinking about it from the player's perspective, I'm like, okay, I need to kind of have these goalposts in mind so I can reference back. Because it is frustrating if like a DM like dangles something for the players and they just forget it, you know, and you know, it, and it's hard to remember. It's like, oh, remember that six sessions ago we, we talked about this. It might be easier for the DM to remember. So I think that's one way in which um, I've become a better note taker, I think, as a player after my experience DMing. Excellent. All right. So continuing around, Ostron, Panzer or Prepper? I'll give you one guess. Ryu, pantser or prepper? <laughs> are, you, are you actually asking me? Or? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm actually asking. He's clearly a prepper, isn't he? Look at him. Well, yeah. He's, 
He's got spreadsheets for his spreadsheets. Yeah, I figured he just might want to put a little bit more detail into that. <laughs> well, I i mean, I was actually thinking about it, and it, it to a certain extent, it depends on your... Or it depends on how you're breaking down the record of work done, because... Mm-hmm. For individual sessions, I actually don't tend to do that much prep a lot of the time. However, part of the reason I'm able to do that is I spend what some people have called a masochistically ridiculous amount of time prepping the campaign that I'm running. So I suppose if you take the amount of time I spend prepping the campaign and the campaign world and instead spread that out over all of the sessions, I'm still doing a lot of prep. But front-loading a lot of that work saves me time prepping on the actual day or just before the actual sessions. That said, I'm currently DMing a campaign where part of the prep involves me writing up a two to three page mission briefing for every one of the players before it goes through. So I think that still falls under the category of a lot of prep. All right. So Ryu. I think I am a, at least as a DM, more of a prep pantser. I do a little bit of prep, Mm -hmm. mainly just to, because currently all of my games are online so I have to at least get maps up there so that my players can see where we are and and I do at least try to get a feel of how whatever session we're going into is going to play out but I don't typically spend a whole lot of time trying to analyze stuff I will glance over stat blocks, but I won't really spend a lot of time trying to figure out exactly where to place the baddies until combat actually starts. And really, the main thing that I tend to prep is the personalities that my NPCs are going to have. But other than that, Mm. Pretty much everything is on the fly. I try to let my players guide the story more than I do. Yeah, I mean, personally, I think I'm definitely that kind of half prep, half pants kind of person because um, I got burnt early on in DMing by doing the classic DM mistake, which is having a very well-planned story arc and then realizing you can't railroad your players into it. Well, I mean, you could, but I didn't want to, because where's the fun in that? (laughs) And so I had to scrap everything. And then from that point on, I very much left it with much more of an idea of like, okay, these are like the big scenes that are going to happen, but they're not set in stone. They're not fixed. It can move between it. So I tend to now prep a lot more uh, tools to get me through the pantsing than actually preparing (laughs) core material if that makes sense. So I will I will get a lists of NPC names and list of NPC personalities so that then if I do quickly need a character sheet, much like Castle, I can just bring that up on fast character and that's the stats for it. Um, I've also, you know, memorized various techniques like the five room dungeon. So if the players go completely off script, I know I can just generate a dungeon mentally on the fly that will be able to fill them out for whatever it is that they're doing. 
But you did bring up an interesting point, Ryu, is that when I do my digital games, I prepare way more because I have to get maps ready and I feel that there's more of an expectation with the digital tabletop. Whereas in person, I use a whiteboard and a pen and they do yeah. not even look remotely like the scene I'm trying to describe. But it's Same. sort of, yeah. So it's it's different angles on that. So going back to the guests, I'm going to go straight towards uh, Rat Queen on this one. And I'm curious, do you find that you prep different things on the different mediums and outside of that regardless would you say that you had any prep week zones i've only ever dm'd uh D online and so i did spend a lot of time on the maps and i only ran um modules so i would like review the kind of notes get all the main characters in my head and so forth mm-hmm I think my weak spot and basically, you know, like my goal for myself is to do more of what you and Ryu were talking about is that I'm not good at quick uh, thinking quickly on my feet. So I want to have these like chunks that I can just like throw in when instead of improving a situation. So little scenarios, whether it's characters or hooks or um, small encounters that um, I've got prepped that can go pretty much anywhere they need to go, but that I can rely on if the characters are doing something that I didn't plan for. So that was my weakness, I think. Not thinking fast on my feet and not having enough kind of extra stuff that I could pull out of my mm. my bag of holding. So in that case, given that we've got a DM here who uh, pants everything with dwarves falling out the sky, Casa, is there any tips that you could give Rat Queen on how to do things more on the fly? There's a subreddit called uh, D100, which they've got all these wonderful D100 tables. Um, they're all really, really crazy, such as like um, pub names, or uh, they had one which was uh, non-combat engagements, essentially. So instead of having a wandering group coming up and attacking you, um, one that I rolled or you know decided that that one will do and memorized was um, the, the, the party were walking down a road and there was a huge iron golem walking towards them. So immediately everyone jumped out of the way and, and watched as this thing just carried on walking straight past them, completely ignored them, put everyone on the back foot. And it was brilliant because it created tension that wasn't needed. Um, so really it's just looking at um, lists and, and just fun things that people put up like the thing about the dwarves falling from the sky was actually something I learned uh, a long time ago. I've read about a Spelljammer thing, and it was um, uh. in, in there. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> the idea was that this particular dwarf had been chucked out of an airlock in orbit, but everyone looks for things like portals and, and bits of magic, but there's nothing there, and it's brilliant. Um, so, yeah, just look for really interesting um, bits of notes that you can just like either take down or memorize and just throw in randomly. Um, equally, really rare creatures. I, I had an NPC turn up that was a unicorn. Admittedly, he wasn't that nice, but again, it just throws everyone off. It's fantastic. I will say I have occasionally used encounters like that that are non-combat encounters, but they look like combat encounters or they seem like they have the potential to turn into combat encounters mm-hmm. and it's great for two reasons in my opinion first of all like carcer said it ramps up the tension and it can result in some fairly hilarious interactions between all the 
player characters as they try to figure out how to respond, what to do, and everything. But the other really useful thing about them is it gives me stall time because I know I don't have to do anything to prepare for the upcoming combat because it's not going to happen. But the players will usually spend somewhere between 5 and 15 minutes trying to figure out what they should do, how they should prep, what sort of tactics they should get themselves set up for. Meanwhile, I'm behind the screen prepping for whatever they're going to run into next. Yeah, buffer time is quite an important concept, I think, when DMing. And that is also something that helps me on the fly. So if the characters go somewhere that I wasn't expecting them to go, throwing something in there as a delaying tactic whilst I'm then figuring out the rest of it is actually really helpful. And I think a lot of improvisation is actually variance on that. It's almost, okay, here's a little thing just to keep you occupied, I need to figure out where it's going. And sometimes that can be something as simple as they decide to take a long rest so you get a stranger to wander into the camp at night. Doesn't even have to be hostile, can just come and share their firelight, have a chat and then wander off. But doing that whole thing kind of gives you a bit of breathing room to be able to plan the next bits. So even if you are a pantser, there is still planning just in the middle of the session. I'd like to add from a player's perspective, um, there's been numerous times where I've been in games where after the fact we found out that we completely threw our DM for a loop, <laughs> um, skipping an entire level of a dungeon that they spent hours creating because we climbed up a um, waste a waste pipe mm -hmm. um, is one example. But I can't think of any situations where any of my DMs, be it the more experienced or the less experienced ones, have ever given that away. Um, and, you know, they've just kind of moved forward with it. And we didn't know about that dungeon thing until after the session was over and he told us. And I think the key in is not letting that slip because we're so busy in our head in what's going to happen next. You know, we pop out in essentially a bathroom in a castle and we're thinking about how do we get out in this hallway and it's giving him time as we're arguing with each other how to best climb up this pipe, um, how to get out into the hallway, are there guards, then it's giving him time to relocate things he's already created to this next level. And I think the key is uh, from a DM is to know that your players are going to be too busy trying to figure out what you're up to that they're not going to know that they've already messed up half of your plans. So as long as you don't say anything, they're not going to know. And the flip side of that is that if they do skip a chunk of content, you've got a chunk of content that you can use later. Yeah, you might have to edit how they get there or maybe change the boss or, okay, it's now not a castle, it's a run-of-the-mill dungeon, but you've got that in the back pocket ready to go. You do also have the fun uh, Schrodinger's Goblin as I like to call yes. it. Yes, um, <laughs> love this concept. So the idea is that you, uh, you're you in a cave, for example, you've got two paths, left or right. You as a DM know that the goblins are waiting in in, uh, in wait uh, to ambush on the right-hand path. Players go on the left. Well, now the goblins are on the left as well. So it doesn't matter what the players do. You can always just dump these things in front of them. Yeah, although I will say that I think the, the key thing to be cautious of is that you do also have to have an alternative path prepared because once they've gone through they may want to backtrack 
Um, and you don't want then the illusion of choice to be ruined because that's one thing as players, mm-hmm. obviously, they've got to suspend certain elements of disbelief and exist in this world that at least needs to be consistent with itself. So as long as you don't rely too heavily, and I'm not talking to you directly, Carl, so this is just, you know, general warning message. Always make sure you do have a plan for when they eventually come back. But the good thing is that goblin ambush gives you time to think what was down the other path. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other thing is that if you already know what's down path left and path right, and they chose the wrong one for what you want at that time, just swap them over. Yep. As long as the topography works, then it's fine. So what about you, Carsa? Do you have any bits that no matter how many times you run a session, it always catches you off guard and you think, ah, next time, next time I'll be prepared for that? I think for that one, it's how clever my players can be. I'm glad you brought this up. I will I will come back to this shortly, but do continue. So I... I like to choose creatures that pick on specific weaknesses of specific characters. For example, uh, the monk in the party, yeah, they get a troll because it hurts them more. But for some reason, they always seem to manage to gang up on me and kill the creature before anything really awesome happens. It's really annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But generally speaking, the, in truth, the thing that really always trips me up is I, I keep forgetting that one trap that I had in mind. Like, I've always got this idea of a brilliant thing that's definitely going to go in here, and then because of uh, the flow of the game, it just falls out of my head. Yep, I've been there. I've done that too. Um, Remembering how good your players are. So this is slightly outside of the D&D realm, but it is still very much a tabletop role-playing game. I also run a Star Trek Adventures game, and in this, there is one particular player who, to say they have an encyclopedic knowledge of the extended Star Trek universe, is underestimating how quickly they can recall facts and various, not just broad strokes what happens in the novels, but can pinpoint dates and people who were active during that time. And so I've got to be very careful. And because of this, my STA games, I actually plan and prep a lot more than I would for a D&D game because I need to like double check things, cross-reference things. And to make things even better, this person also, I, I can't remember if they if they achieved or if they were doing and ended up dropping out. But either way, a PhD in astrophysics was also involved. And when you, so when you combine a Star Trek nerd with an encyclopedic knowledge of the novels and a PhD in astrophysics, as a DM, there is a little bit of pressure to get it right there. It's like DMing an Eberron campaign where Keith Baker is a player. Yes. And Landon. (laughs) I mean, the thing is, knowing what it's like to run an Eberron campaign, I think I'd be okay. I'd give the DM a pass on so much. Okay, so uh, Electric, what about you? Uh, in your prep as a player, are there things that you miss every single week and you think, oh, yeah, okay, next week I'm going to look at a list of my spells before I play? Yeah, spells are definitely my weak point. I tend mm-hmm. to not play spellcasters a lot, so when I do, I'll forget to change spells uh, after a long rest, even mid, mid-game. Um, that's definitely a weak point. And then um, the magic items thing that Rat Queen touched on earlier. I can't think of the amount of times where um, we've had items that were given to us as a party and we haven't used them. And they were, they were so useful and just forgot. You know, if it's, not a, if it's not a healing potion, we tend to forget that we have it. 
Mm -hmm. I I definitely think that's something we need to prep better on um, myself um, is just keeping track of those things. Well, like Requiem was saying, review your inventory. Yeah, exactly. So a fun little thing about this. um, When I first picked up my 3D printer and we were still at a point where we could play in person, I actually designed and printed a whole load of little teeny tiny items which would be in their packs. And I gave them, gave these items to my players. So they actually had a physical representation that they could pour out onto the table and say, right, pick it this up, I'm going to use this rope. And because it's all out there, they always knew what was then. Yeah, it's like having item cards or similar. A physical reminder mm-hmm. is usually always good. And that that's something that I uh, wish I did more of is the physical items for D&D because I always have the idea to do it in advance life gets in the way i suddenly realized actually if i was going to do that i needed a two-hour chunk where i could have just made those things and i end up not doing it or last minute as i'm like gathering all my materials to travel to go and play DD, i suddenly have a brainwave of ah oh, that's how that thing fits into this but then it would have been great if i had a physical thing to hand out or whatever surrounding it and the last game that i played i actually suffered from a uh, massive brain fart basically when I gathered all my supplies, figured out the best way something was going to fit together, made the handout for it, and then promptly left all of it in a box on my dining room table whilst I travelled to the place where the D&D was being held. So apparently even when I do prep, I still forget to bring it. So what about you guys, uh, Ostron and Ryu? Is there things that you don't prep as much? And in Ostron's case, maybe what you don't prep is improv? I don't know. Uh, For me, I often get into the same trap as Rat Queen. A couple of the games I run, or actually, I think it's just one now. Yeah, one of the games that I run is virtual, and one of the things that will very often trip me up is getting maps ready, because I, like you said, I very often DM in physical space and... If the players decide to go off somewhere, then I can just sort of draw it or usually we have like grid tiles so I can just throw those on the table. But I sort of always forget that in virtual tabletop, I need to have an actual drawn out map to put on the screen for them to use. And there has been more than one occasion where I've lacked the appropriate map for the situation so that's something i need to get a little better at and most of the time it's because as electric said the players have decided to not go somewhere where (laughs) i was expecting them to go so yeah classic players what about you ryu for me i I look into, and I've mentioned this before, I look into a lot of how to make combat more interesting. And then when I'm actually sitting at the game table, I tend to completely forget all of the information that I have looked up recently on doing that and just kind of regress back to or fall back into my own ways of... uh, trying to describe how things go. I do think that I have gotten better at combat, but I still feel like it's a little too boring. And I I really, every 
pretty much every session. When it's over, I'm like, mm, I should have done combat like this. Why didn't I do it like that? <laughs> yeah, it's almost like the old uh, shower argument thing, isn't it? Where like in the shower, three days after the argument happened, you're suddenly like, mm, I should yep. have said that. That's what I should have said. Right there. Yeah. If this happens again, that's what I'm going to say. Definitely. Exactly. That's really the only thing that I can think of as a DM. As a player, I I definitely don't prep anything <laughs> as, as a player. I think the biggest issue that I have as a player, thinking that it's something that I need to do better next time, is separating my own thoughts from my character's thoughts. Right. That one's quite tricky to do for a lot of players, though. And I feel that unless you've really got uh, either a lot of years behind you playing or something in an adjacent field like theatre, that's actually quite a tough one to do. I actually do have a lot of years in theatre, and I still, because it's not a scripted role, I have issues with keeping it separate. Because in my head, I'm like, I really don't like that. I know that my character probably wouldn't care, but I don't like it, and therefore I don't want to do it that way. You could always just create characters that are more like yourself. True. There are a lot of times, though, that I like to create characters that are a specific way because I'm trying to make them not like me. <laughs> I think one thing for me on this, um, like... Sometimes it's the reflection after my character has done something and how I fold that into her character. Mm. Um, because, like, I had a character who did something very out of character. And it was mostly because, like, I was like, oh, I, I'm so indecisive, I have to do something. So the character did something out of character, but but then that became, like, a huge defining moment for her that's really changed the arc of her story, is that she acted in such a way in that moment. And it, it ended up being really emotionally impactful for me and I, I think for the DM and for the other players. But it was it was kind of that after the fact reflection and say, okay, like how do I move forward? Knowing that I probably did something wrong in the sense that I, I was acting out of character, but how can I use that as a story building moment? Good thoughts. I'll keep that in mind. I think from a DM's perspective, I can tell you the one thing that my players keep forgetting about mm -hmm. is all the um, awesome inspiration I keep giving them. Ah, yes. Physical reminders again. This is good. Mm -hmm. I specifically have for my table an oversized D20. And I think I've said this before. When, it, when I say oversized, it's about the size of my fist. You try to wrap your hand around it. You can't close your hand. That thing on the table reminds them that inspiration is there. The physical reminders well, are definitely a thing. Or you could just use, what was it, poker crisps? Poker crisps, exactly, yes. Yep, you could use poker crisps, they work too. So I think overall what we've learnt from this is that when it comes to session preparation, as a DM, prepare your maps. Um, that is something that apparently we all need to do, and don't underestimate your players, is the second thing. As a player though, uh, check your spells and check your inventory. And hopefully, if you do both of those, well, I mean, we're 90% of the way there now, right? So, yeah. Anyway, that's our thoughts on it, but we would love to hear what you think, so be sure to comment on this show's post on our social media or on Discord at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. But for now, let's take a short rest and hear some wisdom of the masters on intelligent villains. 
I am more than the exalted ruler of this land and the master of all I survey. You think you're the only hero in the world? You become part of a bigger universe. Okay, so I don't think Esreg needs gold. His house is already pretty impressive. Hey, what you doing? Oh, uh, don't, don't worry. I don't think you'll be able to help me. Well, I'm still not opening a portal to the Nine Hells for you, so you may as well see what she's got to offer. Um, standing right here, guys. Fine, fine. So, Ryu, I'm trying to figure out how to DM and roleplay the big bad for my campaign. They're supposed to be super intelligent, and I'm not quite. Are you trying to say that I'm too dumb to help you? No, but I mean, if you need to DM an evil person, you just put on the hat and then you stop worrying about it. Hey now, as much as I love her, Katie sometimes is less gentle with people than I'd prefer. I have to DM evil masterminds just as much as you do. But you have no problems with it. Oh no, I run into issues all the time. One of the challenges of being a DM is similar to one that players can face with their characters. Someone who's objectively not strong may be role-playing a barbarian that can rip trees out of the ground, but they don't have to do that in person. On the other hand, a shy person playing an outgoing, friendly priest who comforts people all the time, or a person with no sense of humor playing a witty rogue, often feel pressure to actually role-play those aspects of their characters at the table, and that can be a challenge. We'll take this opportunity to remind everyone that's not the way it's supposed to work. If someone is role-playing a master orator and they want to try to give a speech, that's great. But the only thing that should matter for gameplay purposes is the die roll on their persuasion or performance. If they got a 20 plus on their score, it shouldn't matter if they can actually give a motivational speech. Likewise, everyone should be role-playing like that rogue is the group's personal Robin Williams, even if the player themselves can't tell a joke. However, the DM arguably has a tougher challenge when it comes to evil masterminds. The same leeway should be given to the DM around speeches and so on, but that's not the major problem. The mastermind is supposed to be able to outsmart and anticipate the heroes a lot of the time, certainly at least as long as the story needs them to. However, in reality, the DM is one person, and their ideas working against the minds of anywhere from three to six people, some of whom may actually be more clever or intelligent than the DM. That's unless you actually have a genius-level evil psychopath for a DM, in which case it's very likely the quality of your D&D game should probably not be the first thing that you're worried about. Assuming the DM is an average individual just trying to run the game, they are faced with the challenge of having to come up with genius level plans and countermeasures without the benefit of having the associated intelligence. So how are they supposed to deal with it? Fortunately for DMs, there are ways to get around that, but be warned it does involve either extra preparation on your part or a lot of really clever improvisation. Usually both. As far as preparation goes, the easiest way to conceive an evil plan's details if you can't think of them yourself is theft. I mean, it's an evil plan, you may as well start with deviant behavior out of the gate. Using ideas from other people is a tried and true trick for DMs everywhere, but with large evil figures, sometimes you need to take it to the next level. Steal traps and dungeons and ambush scenarios from D&D resources, sure, but also be willing to steal larger plans and ideas. If you want medieval family intrigue, there are numerous epic fantasy stories with plots around angry illegitimate children, conniving step and half-siblings, or just rival members of the same family. If you need a conquering or takeover plot and don't want to go the route of they just have thousands and thousands of troops, look at figures like Saruman or even Palpatine from Star Wars. 
It requires looking into the plotting and some of the backstory more than with a casual read-through, but both of them worked fairly subtly for years and played different factions against one another before finally coming out as full evil masterminds. If you can't think of any good fictional sources for whatever plot you want to run, or if you're worried you won't be able to disguise it enough that your players won't recognize it immediately, crack open a history book. Takeovers, betrayals, coups, and complex plotting, evil and otherwise, have literally been going on for millennia. If you need inspiration for how a conniving mastermind would get themselves in power, you can start with things like the history of the Caesars in Rome, the Tudors or the Medici families in Europe, the communist revolutions in China or Russia, or the shogunate period in Japan, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. You can even look into non-political things like the mobsters of the 1920s, the robber barons of the Industrial Revolution, or activities of groups like the Yakuza. Even though they aren't concerned with political power per se, they still used underhanded methods to get themselves some kind of power. One cautionary note there, however, if you're looking at real history, it's usually best to start at least 100 years ago or more and work backwards for inspiration. Descriptions of history more recent than that can still be tainted by emotional interpretations based on modern politics and may have things omitted or glossed over for various reasons. In the United States, for example, depending on what sources you look at, you're still going to get wildly different descriptions of the motivations for the American Civil War. But let's say you found your inspiration for the evil plan, you've got your evil plan all worked out, the pieces are in place, blackmail and extortion is in process, your villain is on their way to dominance. Enter the heroes. Now, you have a decision to make, and that will inform what you need to prepare for. Are the heroes going to be aware of the villain's involvement, or not? If this is a Sauron or Strad situation where everyone knows who the villain is and where they are and the whole point is just to get to them, then you don't need to worry about most of the rest of this. However, if you're doing either a recurring villain scenario or a grand betrayal situation, you have more work to do. We'll start with the grand betrayal. This is where the heroes will run into the villain multiple times without knowing that they are actually the villain. Palpatine from the prequel Star Wars media is a prime example of this. What you need to prep for in this case is the ways the villain can be running things and setting themselves up for power, but they are not obvious about it. Some of your research into the larger plot may help you figure out ways your villain could hide their involvement, be it a false persona or secret proxy agents or whatever. The key is that they shouldn't publicly be involved. The benefit to this approach is you don't have to come up with how they're running their evil scheme right away. The heroes will start by dealing with the obvious issues and low-level brutes carrying out menial tasks. It's only once they get into it they'll start looking for the mastermind. However, you do have to figure out how they're involved eventually because the heroes will need to start finding clues that point back to the schemer. On the other hand, you can go with the recurring villain approach. In that scenario, the villain may be hidden for a little while, but their identity will be revealed relatively quickly. At that point, you have the next challenge, keeping your villain alive. Getting into combat with the heroes is a quick way for someone to die. Either the evil mastermind will die because the heroes are annoyingly efficient at killing any single target when they put their mind to it, or one of the characters is going to die because the villain is a high enough level to shrug off the hero's attacks, which means their own attacks are going to level the competition. The answer to that is escape routes and traps. James Bond villains, for example, almost always encounter the titular hero a few times before any sort of final confrontation takes place, and they always end up trapping Bond in some sort of dire situation or sending a wave of minions to tie him up and stall pursuit. 
Eventually, regardless of how your villain started, you'll need to figure out how they're going to escape confrontation with the heroes. Fortunately, there are a lot of options in most D&D games. Teleport is a wonderful spell, for example, but what do you do if someone has a counterspell? Or what if they beat the initiative and manage to hold person them before any casting or movement can occur? So where an evil mastermind would need to think up counters on the fly, you as the DM have the advantage of omniscience. You know what all the heroes are capable of doing, so you can prepare counters for them in advance. Having two or so counters for each character's signature moves is probably good enough to give your villain time to escape. And you don't have to worry about burning legendary saves or similar one-off solutions because the guy isn't in the fight for the long haul. Those are some specific examples that can help, but in general, the best way to improve your villain's intelligence is the way that they do it with computer networks. Just get more nodes involved. Find a Discord group, such as the one that Heroes Rise has, for example, maybe. Talk to D&D players from your friendly local gaming store, or even post on Reddit if you're desperate, and just crowdsource the solution. Put up the general scenario or the specifics if you have them, and ask people to punch holes in the plan and find obvious weaknesses that you may be blind to but the villain would have anticipated. You're trying to imitate someone who has vastly more intelligence than you do as a single individual, so don't feel guilty or inadequate if you need more minds to solve the problem. Which is great if you plan in advance, but what if something goes wrong in the moment and the players have a burst of creative imagination that just shortcuts all of your ideas? In some cases, maybe just let them have it. Just let the villain get their comeuppance early and promote someone else to fill the spot. Or make them not actually the villain. However, if you really want to keep that specific person alive, the best thing you can do is to simply fake it and retcon. Get them out of there and then think of a reason that they were able to vanish later. Again, you can crowdsource the solution after the fact as well, but another thing that a lot of DMs have taken advantage of is having their players give them the answer. The players are bound to speculate about how the villain got away, so if you're really strapped for ideas, just listen to their theories and then pick whichever one you like best. As we mentioned when this first started, all of this involves work. Looking up information and crowdsourcing solutions aren't usually things that can be accomplished with a sly flourish 20 minute prep session. And if you want the villain to be both intelligent and believable, it's worth it to put in the time so they can seem to have the smarts and anticipation they're supposed to. One final thing to remember in this whole endeavor is that you aren't trying to beat the players. You want to create a repeating, believable villain with above-average intelligence, but ultimately the idea is that the players should be able to win. Make sure to leave them a way to do that. At first, when you need the villain to survive, you should be closing off all the loopholes, but later on you want to make sure you give the players a path to victory. Hopefully if you do that, the players will end up greatly satisfied at finally taking down the villain that's been outsmarting them the whole time. Okay, well that definitely gives me some better ideas. That is the point, isn't it? Mm. So, wait, the killer DM really isn't helpful with these kind of things, Ryu? Uh, I mean, okay, don't tell her I said this. But Katie isn't really a whole lot smarter than me. She just has more stuff. I mean, when she finds out someone smarter than she is, she just, you know, kills them. I mean, that doesn't make sense because she kills Ostron all the time, but she never barely... Hang on. Wait a minute. Scrying pool? Scrying pool. Hang on, guys. The, the killer DM is not smarter than me. What news from the north? Guidance of Rohan. Message for you, sir. Last time we asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse, did any of the marketplace entries catch your attention? 
Do you want an early, fan-inspired version of Edition 5.5? Do your monsters need extra tentacles, more claws, and mech suits? Do you want fancy chips, or poker crisps as Lennon calls them, to keep track of your spell slots? Gath Redacted Memvar wrote in on Discord to say, I love mechs. I think they're one of the greatest rule of cool creation in works of fiction. That being said, I don't like mechs in my D&D games. While not as vehemently opposed to them as Ostron is to the setting, I find even clockwork and steampunk mechs to be anachronistic in medieval fantasy. That's not to say other people can't enjoy them, by all means do so. But for me, golems are about the limit when it comes to giant, stompy, artificial creations in a D&D setting. Carcer, Mimic Enthusiast on Discord says, I have a love for messing around with monsters, especially if the players know what the creature is meant to be. For example, I made a gelatinous cube, but it dealt necrotic damage and was just a cube of pure black. Such a simple change, but it put the players on the back foot. I really appreciate the spell tokens. I am actually in the process of designing a switch panel for each class to show, at a glance, which spells are left to cast without the ability to lose the tokens. Also, poker chips are American in nature and cannot be eaten, therefore are not crisps. Heathens. Makes a good point there, actually. <laughs> Except I think, wasn't it a Brit that wrote the joke? Shh, can't prove that either. So I'm pretty sure Google Docs has change logs. It does. Wow, I just cannot get away with my crimes this evening. <laughs> we did a short rest about how to improve that. Yeah, you guys can give me ideas on how I can get away with it. So I agree with Gath about mechs feeling weird, but I still like the idea of clockwork creatures being yeah. okay in D&D. Yeah, there is something about clockwork creatures that just feels more fantasy, and I think it's probably just because mechs imply some sort of otherworldly power source, whereas clockwork is something that can run without power, if you see what I mean. On the note of the uh, community question, though, where we were saying about the early 5.5 edition, um, me and Ostron were actually debating sort of immediately after the second like should we buy this we weren't too sure whether we were going to take the risk on it particularly because whilst we may like more crunchy settings and ostron really likes them that you know didn't necessarily know if we'd have groups that could run it with it etc in the end we both held off on it and apparently according to a lot of people that did dive into it on the internet there's a lot of stuff that was in that 5.5 fan-made version where it was sort of build in the kickstarter as just take the bits and pieces from it that you want and it's fully compatible but apparently there's a lot of stuff that is effectively locked away under a complete rewriting of the rules so if you didn't get in on it and you were thinking about picking it up later um i would just definitely bear that in mind if you did get in on it though i would be really interested to hear if that is also your experience um because me and ostron are just using third-hand information on this but uh just thought it was a good bit of feedback there even though it didn't come into us uh just to let everybody know and that brings us to this week's community questions do you have a tendency to under prep over prep or do you manage to hit the goldilocks zone where everything is just right what are the things that no matter how many times you run a session always catch you off guard and you swear you'll be more prepared for next time and a quick reminder that we're giving away a card deck of animal companions in a cool mim cat shaped box which is an exclusive Kickstarter version that you can't get anywhere else. If you'd like to be in with a chance of winning, look for our show post on Twitter or Instagram, retweet and share it, and your name will go into a very fancy hat, not that one, and we'll draw a winner on next week's show. You have from the time our show post goes live until 8pm Central on Saturday, November 14th to retweet and share. And details on how you can get in touch coming up next. 
And so this brings us to the end of the 188th entry into our chronicle. We'll be back with our 189th entry on November 17th. But before we go, we want to know, for you, dear listener, how was the show? Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on this show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on all good social media at Heroes Rise D&D. You can email us, sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. Or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. This show isn't just a one-way conversation, and we always love to hear from you. So take a minute and tell us your thoughts. And make sure that you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere else that good podcasts can be found, or through our feed at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com. And if you like the sound of what we do, there are many ways that you can help support us. Heroes Rise is an official Dice Envy affiliate. Get yourself some incredibly awesome dice that will not only make you the envy of your table, but will also help your favourite D&D podcast. Just use our affiliate link, heroesrisepodcast.com slash diceenvy, and be sure to enter the code HEROESRISE at checkout to save yourself an extra 10%. You can also help support the show by subscribing to our Patreon. Tiers start from $4 per month and give you raw recordings of the show before the Wednesday release, Heroes Rise t-shirts, pins, and a super secret patron lounge on our Discord server. Plus, occasionally, like tonight, you might get dragged into a recording or two for some dissonant whispers. Lucky you! To become a patron, just head on over to patreon.com slash heroesrisednd. And if a financial donation isn't your thing, that's cool too. Every time that you share our show with friends, family, or your friendly local gaming stores, you help our audience to grow, and that's ultimately why we do this. Thanks for all of your likes, shares, and retweets. We want to take a moment to thank our head scribe Gath Memvar, our social media mage Ray Ray, our web wizard Mark, our dungeon master and adventures league correspondent Indigo Spectre, our master of the marketplace Bloodlake, our distant whisperers, and our audio alchemists Mikey, Branwyn, and Demosthenes. Special thanks go to our halfling moneylenders Marty Chadoric, The Despoiler, The Hobbyist, Randall Evans, Brewhammer, The Sobby, Rat Queen, and Amber Squirrel Craning. Vince Fepp, for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show, be sure to check him out at vincefepp.banecamp.com, and Lo of Lowe's Lair, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at Lowe's underscore Lair, and Facebook at facebook.com slash Lowe's Lair. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again, fare thee well, brave adventure. This episode 188, not 187. I think that's correct. Yep, because I forgot to update the number, so we almost screwed up the intro, but not quite. Three, two. <laughs> Talk to players from your friendly ukulele. It's it's okay, Lennon. I mean, you are saying heroes rise and not hey or res wise rise as yeah. what is ty- typed there. <laughs> I think I think this is the part where Ostron was day drinking, which is worrying because he doesn't drink. So anyway, someone spiked my water. That's a new thought. Okay. <laughs> to be fair, there probably should have been a period in there that wasn't. Yeah. But he is British, so. <laughs> Lies. You can't prove it. Wait. We're we're about to prove it. <laughs> uh, well, more to the point, canonically, 
they they would have proved it by this point when the show's released. So yeah, dang it. <laughs> Just to make it clear, I've removed the part of putting in the individual names because we technically don't know until it's all done so just do it as the bit that is highlighted and nothing more what <laughs>